Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue. Duncan, we had a week off, so our inbox is overflowing with questions. Remember, email is askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's sponsor is Liftoff, our automated platform provided by Betterment. Uh, it's kind of an uncertain time these days, right? It seems like one week we have stagflation, the next week the economy is too strong, one week we have a hard landing, the next week is soft landing, the areas are constantly changing. Uh, in that context, I, I don't mind just automating and setting and forgetting. And that's kind of what I do with my account at Liftoff. My funds go in automatically. My dividends are reinvested automatically. Tax loss harvested automatically. All this stuff happens automatically. I don't have to do it. Emotions are taken out of the equation. If you want to check it out, liftoffinvest.com. Duncan, last time we had a show, we looked at some charts, some long-term 10-year rolling returns, 20-year rolling returns, 30-year rolling returns. John, throw up this uh, this tweet. They've got to be rolling, you know? Yes. Well, that, that, yeah, that, that, that's a more uh, honest way of looking at it. So I, I put this up, and I did all, all the different ones, and someone responded. You know, this was comforting to me in my 30s, not so much anymore looking at the 10 and 20 charts. And I feel like this is a constant back and forth we're having on the show with people with questions. Should I be 100% in stocks? Should I, should I hedge a little bit and have more money in cash or bonds or alternatives or whatever it is? And this person was saying, like, hey, when I'm 20 and 30, having all my money in stocks is pretty easy because, you know, the very long term looks pretty darn good. When I'm in my middle age, 40s, 50s or so, maybe 60s, it doesn't look so good because 10 years you can have you can still have really bad returns. And I think this this is the constant push and pull for investors is thinking through this this idea of of when to balance and when to take a bunch of risk and the good thing is is that no one has the the right answer. Unfortunately or fortunately, is that there is no no good. Some people are fine taking on that 100% equity risk. Some people aren't and need to do more of a glide path. The good the good thing is is that you just have to work do what works for you. Also, there are plenty of people out there that will tell you they know the answer. You know? Yes, and that, so. that's the thing is it's circumstantial and it matters. It it not only matters your financial you know your financial situation, but also your your personal makeup. If you know that you simply can't handle taking so much risk then you have to do what works for you. And if you know that you can and you're going to be okay with it, then, yeah, it, that's the thing I've come to learn is just do what works for you. All right, let's get into the questions. Right. Yeah, I always feel really good about risk until things go against me. But, <laughs> um, okay, so first up today, we have a question from uh, from me, actually. Uh, I was asking you the other day, and we were like, let's just do it on the show. Um, so I was asking you, is it okay to stop contributing to your 401k to save up for a down payment? Yeah, this sounds like a sharp, sharp guy here asking this question. So you, you were saying, listen, I'm looking to buy a house. We're trying to figure out how much we can, how much we can afford. We're trying to figure out down payment. Is it ever okay? And I think you also said like uh, your wife might get a match regardless, but you, if you stop your 401k, you don't get the match anymore, right? Right. I understand the hesitancy here because a lot of these personal finance experts will shame you if you because do you know what those contributions could be worth in 30 years if you don't put them on? And it is true that like a match is free money. Uh, but it's not like you're turning them off to do FanDuel parlays all day, right? You're, yeah, you're, not. You're, you're turning it off for a good reason. Like sometimes life gets in the way of the spreadsheets when it comes to financial planning. You just have to divert your savings into other avenues. So the first house we ever bought, the it was a split-level ranch, and the upper half of it was finished. The lower level was unfinished, and we kind of said, hey, this is great. We can grow into it a little bit, and then when the time is right, we can finish out the basement. And it was more expensive than I thought. Now, I will say this. To save some money, my father-in-law knows what he's doing in terms of building and such. So I'd say eh, 50 or 60% of what we did ourselves. I'm not handy at all, so I did what I was told. I held this and, and moved this. And, but we framed it, and we, we did some of the stuff 
ourselves. So we did two bedrooms, a bathroom, you know, put a little bar in, you know, big TV area, but it cost us. And so for probably a period of like, I don't know, 18 to 24 months, that was our big saving focus. And I didn't completely turn off savings elsewhere, but that, that was money that could have gone into saving money elsewhere. So would it have been nice to have those dollars go into the market? This is, you know, probably 10 years later. Yeah, they'd be worth a lot more money, but my 401k wouldn't have added 1,900 square feet to our house either, right? So I think it's, listen, it's not easy to save for a down payment these days, especially in an expensive real estate market like you're in. So I think if you have to go for 6, 12, 18 months and that's where your personal finance focus is and then you know that afterwards you can turn them back on, you know, that what's going to make you happier? Getting your living situation figured out? You've already, you've already learned that it's, it's kind of tricky when you're renting, right? Having your right. own place would, might make things a little easier. So, uh, yes, I, I bless this decision. If you have to do it, you have to do it, right? Okay. Yeah, and the other part that I was just having trouble figuring out is, you know, so if you have a traditional 401k contribution that's before, um, before taxes or whatever, you know, then you have to factor in, okay, well, how much is this actually going to end up, you know, netting me for a down payment savings, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little confusing to figure out. I think what, yeah. if you're doing Roth contributions, I guess it's it's more straightforward. Well, and th- that's a very stressful process too. Buying your first home, especially buying a home at any time, is, is stressful. But knowing you have that sort of fallback for the down payment and having it be ready, that you can, if you find a place you really love, that you can go ahead and do it. And you you already got the letter from the bank saying yes, you're signed off at this level. That that's good peace of mind. That is that that money sitting in your four hundred one k is not going to give you nearly as much peace of mind as having that down payment sitting there ready to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Also, I good luck. Good luck with the housing search. It's not like you. It's a really easy. As we're we're going to talk about some questions here. It's not the easiest housing market. Yeah, no, it's it's not looking great. But the the good news is, is we're about to sign. We're getting into another place finally after the flood. For all the, those of you that follow along week to week, so we're actually signing another twelve month lease. So it will be probably twelve months anyway. Ah, good. You have some time then. All right, let's do another one. All right. Up next, we have. I'm in my mid-40s and have been running my own RRSP, Canadian 401k, for a while now. I have almost no exposure to bonds, and I ran it by an advisor, and her reply was, why would you want bonds? As bonds uh, had been paying next to nothing for years and didn't appear to offer much protection when stocks dropped. Instead of bonds, I've been buying covered call ETFs for what would be the fixed income portion of my portfolio. They pay a nice 6 to 10% distribution, and looking at charts, seem to be more secure than even a bond ETF. I'm not expecting to make a massive of capital gains from the value of the individual shares, but using a drip and watching the shares multiply over time seems like a much better play than making almost nothing on a bond ETF. Does this make sense or have the rate hikes changed things? All right, before we get into this one, someone actually in the, the live comments here said, how about a 401k loan for Duncan? We're going to get into that in a couple weeks, actually. Blair Ducanet is going to come talk about her situation with that. Um, so. Cool. Put a pin in that one. Also, a drip just for our, our young and uh, new investors watching. That's an automate, automated uh, dividend dividend reinvestment plan. plan, right? Yep. Okay. So we've been running our Google Doc with questions, and the section on investing has been filling up with covered call questions for the better part of a year. There are a ton of investors who swear by this strategy. Uh, Jason Zweig at the Wall Street Journal actually just had a piece about this a couple weeks ago. How covered strategies are just covered call strategies are just exploding in popularity. And the reason why, because the strategy outperformed last last year. And given how it works, it kind of makes sense. So some people might not understand exactly how these work. So let's let's do a quick tutorial here. So selling a call option. This a call option itself gives the buyer of that option 
the right to buy at a specified price by a specified date. So if it hits a certain price by a date, you have the right to buy that. To, to get that option, you have to pay a premium. So let's look at an example. So let's say you own 50 shares of a stock currently trading for $20. Call options with a strike price of 25 bucks, say, cost 50 cents a piece. So the person who's selling these options would earn $25 in income on their $1,000 position. That's good enough for yield of 2.5%. So now, though, if you own this stock, your upside is limited to 25%, going from $20 to 25, right? Plus that 2.5% option premium. Uh, and if the stock goes to 30 or 35 or higher, you're over and above 25, you're, you're sort of out of luck, right? That, that's your, you're, you're capped there. So this is a type of strategy that in a bull market, you assume it's going to underperform, right? The income on the sale of options can help in a hard-charging bull market, but you're likely to miss out on some gains and lag the market because you're probably going to get taken out on some of those call options. However, in a bear market, this thing should outperform from the option income alone, right? Plus, in a bear market, volatility spikes, and that actually increases some of that income maybe because it helps with the pricing of options. So essentially what you're doing with a covered call strategy is you are reducing both upside and downside volatility. And so many of these covered call strategies also target lower volatile stocks or low volatile sectors. So that can also also happen less than the blow from stocks stock losses. Uh, so I think one of the reasons so many investors are clamoring for these strategies is because last year they, they, they're they much less volatile and they outperformed in a bear market. Still, I would not go so far as to call this strategy a bond replacement. I think that's a stretch. A lot of people will say the same thing for dividends. Like I think dividends are a bond replacement. I'm not gonna not willing to go that far. I also think it's a stretch to call option income the same as fixed income yield because it's so much more volatile and the pricing can change on it, and it's harder. You're not locking any yield. That yield can change. So I don't think it's the same thing. These strategies still carry equity risk, right? That, that risk might be blunted a little bit, but if stocks get crushed, these strategies are going to go down a lot too. They might not go down as much, but they're still going to get hit. So I, I think this strategy can act as a form of diversification, but I don't think it's a bond or cash substitute by any means, especially as far as my risk tolerance is concerned. Uh, as far as there's a little fixed income slander here, and I want to I stick up for bonds a little bit. I know bonds had a dreadful year last year, right? They got crushed. And I hate the term perfect storm when it comes to finance, but last year was basically like a tornado mixed with a hurricane mixed with a tsunami for bonds. Like a sharknado. Right? Shark, there you go. Uh, my kids are always talking about, is there a tornado with lightning in it or something? Like a, there's some weird thing like that. But I'm sure, yeah. I mean, the pandemic drove bond yields to levels that we've never seen before. I think the tenure got to like 37 basis points intraday or something. It was ridiculous. So that was unstable before before we even got to 9% inflation, right? So there was absolutely no margin of safety built into bonds. And they rose so fast last year because the Fed went on one of their most aggressive hiking cycles ever. And that's just never happened before. So John, give me a chart on of, of stock and bond returns historically. These are all the years since 1928 that the U.S. stock market has been down. It's happened 26 times by my count. And on the right side there is what happened in tenure and treasuries in those same down years. So by my calculations, the average loss for a down year in stocks is a loss of almost 14%. The average gain for tenure treasuries in those years is a gain of a little more than 4%. Now, they're 21 out of the 26 years bonds have been up. So that, in, that average includes last year's almost 18% massacre in tenure treasuries. So the biggest loss in bonds during a down year in stocks before last year was 5%, and that happened in 1969. So 21 out of 26 years for bonds being up and stocks are down, that's not a perfect batting average, but there's always exceptions to the rule. So I don't think you can just throw bonds out the window because they had one bad year. I think last year there was a lot of stuff going on that caused that. Plus, yields could always move higher from here, but we're talking 4 to 5% in U.S. government bonds now, right? You can get 5% on a 6- or 12-month T-bill, which basically has zero duration or interest rate risk. 
And so I understand people not wanting to be involved when rates are 1%, but that's not the world we live in anymore. Maybe maybe bonds aren't for you. That's fine, depending on your risk tolerance. They're, they're not for everyone. But I just think you have to remember that any sort of income-producing strategy that involves a little bit of equity risk, whether it's dividend stocks or covered call strategies or high-yield bonds, whatever it is, uh, that always, always, always with higher yields comes higher risk. So I'm not going to try to talk you out of a covered call strategy. I'm not going to try to talk you into it either. I just want people to go into it with their eyes wide open, understand how it works before investing in something like this. Also, it's probably worth reiterating that this is something that works much better in a uh, in a tax advantaged account. Right? Yes, because the, of all those distributions. The, good call, Duncan. Yes, the, the taxes on the options, even if it's an ETF, you still get dinged a little bit. So, so yes, just kind of know what you're getting yourself into, and yeah. I'm always weary of bond substitutes because I don't think there really is a substitute for government bonds. Right. And they, they call it secure, but I mean, really what they're talking about is low beta, right? Which, yes. like you're saying, means that it's it's capped on the upside some too, right? So it's Yeah, like, the, the same thing works ways. with like defensive stocks or dividend producing stocks that are like in consumer staples, utilities. Those kind of sectors are probably going to outperform in a bear market. They're going to underperform in a bull market. And I think you just have to get used to that kind of thing where you're not change you're not getting into it after the bear market already happened and and you know jumping in and out at the wrong time cool all right let's do another one all right and that question was from mike i believe so thanks mike um okay up next we have you mentioned previously that you took out a heloc during covid uh wondering why you chose that instead of a home equity one we moved into a new home and we're going to sell it but have chosen to rent it out instead without having the proceeds from a prior home sale um, we are con- considering either a HELOC or a home equity loan now that we have equity in two homes. So this is the kind of thing that became very popular during the ultra-low mortgage rate phase of the pandemic. If you hold a 3% mortgage and have the ability to rent at your house and that covers all or most of your needs, like why would you give up on the 3% mortgage? I think it's, a lot of people are thinking. Obviously, that this there's another thing here with being a landlord, but yeah, I, I kind of get it. Also, side note, I think eventually some bank is going to step in and let you port your 3% mortgage to another loan. I think they're going to have to to get housing activity back up. I think they're going to tell people, listen, if you have a 3% mortgage, we'll let you, we'll let you trade it once for a new house. I, it, that's, this is going to happen. Someone is going to do this. Fintech people call me. Uh, listen, homeowners have plenty of equity to deal with these days, so it makes sense. People are trying to think about what to do with it. John, fill up a chart we've used before. This is homeowners' equity. Since t- the end of 2019, which is essentially the start of the pandemic, it's up 50%. You could, it's up to 29 trillion or something. You'd probably take off, I don't know, one or two trillion now based on maybe where housing prices are now, because this is as of the end of last year. You'd expect it to fall a little bit, but we're talking about a $10 trillion increase in home equity. So what do you do with it? As Taylor pointed out, I went with a HELOC uh, during the pandemic. Uh, here's how it works. So I have a 10 year draw period. It works at a line of credit. The bank gave me an amount based on my loan to value ratio. In that 10-year window, I can draw on that credit as needed. I just have to write a check. It's really easy. I can use it as many times as I want. If I use the money, then pay it off, then use it again and pay it off in that 10-year window as many times as I want. During this time, the loan is interest only. So I don't have to pay down the principal if I don't want to. I could just pay the interest after that 10-year draw period is done. Then it essentially converts to a 15-year mortgage with minimum principal and interest payments. So it's it's like another mortgage, basically. It's a 25-year period. The upside of this approach is it has a ton of flexibility. When I took out my HELOC, we really didn't need it for anything. I just did it because I wanted to use it as a backstop. Or if I needed to write a big check for some reason, I didn't want to have to shuffle a bunch of other things around. I could just go here and take it out immediately. And so since we didn't have any huge projects on the horizon and thought we might have some in the future, you know, I just wanted to have it there. The downside is that the rate is floating. So when I first took up my HELOC, it was the rate was sub 3% in 2020. 
Uh, now it's over 7%. I think it's seven and seven and a quarter. Uh, the good news is you can use that. If you use it for home renovations, you can write off that as tax deductible, the interest. But uh, obviously looking in the benefit of hindsight, a home equity loan or, re- or refinance cash out would have been better if I just put that money in cash and let it sit in T-bills. But you know, I, I'm a process guy, not an outcomes guy. I didn't know interest rates were going to do that at the time. So um, the problem with that, if you took out a home equity loan against your house as collateral or cash out refinance, is that that's a loan you have to pay back immediately. So I didn't want to have monthly payments unless I knew I was going to do something with it. So there's not as much flexibility there. So I think you kind of have to ask yourself two questions. Like, when do I need to, need this money? Is, do I need it right now or can it wait? And then are you willing to lock in a 7% rate right now with a home equity loan or you want to roll the dice with the HELOC and maybe those rates fall and come back down to earth because they are variable and they, they'll move it's it's kind of prime plus something basically. So I think liquidity needs probably matter most. Like, do you need this money for something? Do you need it for like a down payment since you to cover some cash since you now have two houses you're sitting on? Uh, anyway, so like all personal finance decisions, do what works for you. But I, I, whether that's borrowing money at 7% if you need the money now and pay, make the payments or taking out a HELOC and seeing what happens. For what it's worth, HELOC sounds cooler to tell people about. <laughs> yes, home equity line of credit, right? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Not bad. So, all right, let's do another one. All right. And so that one was from Taylor. Up next, we have a question from Jimmy. With interest rates, this is a two-parter, so hang in there. Um, With interest rates rising quickly, I know it makes sense for housing prices to stagnate or fall in the short and probably medium term. However, this still makes me think that in the long run, housing will keep getting more and more expensive. I find it hard to imagine in five to 10 years, rates will be as high as they are whenever the Fed raises rates to the peak. Assuming there continues to be a shortage of housing, as soon as there's any sort of combined or continued rate cutting, prices would skyrocket. Page two. My fiance and I uh, bought a house in December of 2021, so I'm biased uh, to try and look at the positive side since we didn't get the COVID equity bump. We also plan on staying in this house for five to 10 years, so we aren't overly stressed about what our house is worth right now. But I feel like housing is in a weird spot where if interest rates go up and no one can afford a house, supply won't increase. But if interest rates go down, there will be a lot of demand, so prices will go up. Curious to hear your thoughts. All right. I love talking about the housing market. So let's bring on one of the very first people I ever read blogging about the housing market. This is pre-2008 crisis, uh, Mr. Barry Ritholtz. The blog father himself. How goes it? I was at your house this summer. Before we get into this question, you did a lot of work too. So I'm. did you do the HELOC or home equity line of credit? It, it's it, funny you said loan? that. So, so we bought a house that was a wreck. And it was the only way we could afford it because we knew how much work it needed. So we set up a HELOC. And, you you know, if you go back to the 08, 09 crisis, people really abused both home equities and HELOCs. And so when we set up a $300,000 HELOC, we said we're only going to use it for home repairs. So we it's a flat roof, not cheap to repair. Take out 50 grand, put it, put in a new roof, pay it down, do the next project. And year after year, we've been doing project after project. It just gives you a lot of flexibility. The risk with the HELOC, as so many people see, they use it to subsidize their their lifestyle. And that's where people get into a lot of trouble. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want to use it for a big project. You don't want to just go on vacations with it and, and then be forced to pay back the rate spikes. Right. Which is what people did in, in the 2000s. They rather than admit that their salaries weren't keeping up with inflation, that their standard of living was dropping. They just tapped into that equity. And and for a lot of people, their home is going to be their most valuable uh, holding. And as that grows, when you retire, you get the benefit of all that built-in inflation. You cash out, 
and sail off into the sunset. Not if you keep tapping that home equity. Right. All right. I want to ask you about the current housing market. So, John, throw up my tweet from this week. I basically said, okay, the economy gets really strong, mortgage rates go up, which was kind of what we've seen for the last three or four weeks, and then no one wants to sell. You see mortgage purchase applications just fall to the floor. Economy gets weaker, mortgage rates might go down, but then demand comes back and more people want to buy. So I said it kind of feels like we're in a no-win situation for prospective home buyers. Duncan, cover your ears. This is an earmuff situation for you. Uh, so unless prices come down substantially. Now, obviously, we're not going to be in this situation forever, but how do you see this? And I think the point of the, the emailer's question here is basically – we just didn't build enough homes, so the supply issue is going to constantly cause problems. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that means that prices have to continue rising, but I think it probably, I don't know, puts a floor where people want to see housing prices crash 30%. I think the floor is probably there because so many people want to buy houses. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. First, when we talk about houses, recognize it's so um, variable. People tend to talk about real estate as if it's all the same. Geography makes a difference. The type of house, is it a starter house, is it a move-up house, makes a big difference. The the price range, um, you know, the million dollars and up and the $5 million and up are their own animals. Uh, So rates make a difference. Um, If you look at new home starts, I I like to use Fred as my data source. If you look at the new home home starts, they really cranked up since the lows in, in 09. We were way, way below average. We probably underbuilt two years. So, so I well, hang on, my- John. Throw my throw my chart up here. I did, I did houses built by decade, and this goes back to the seventies. And you can see that huge drop in the two thousand tens when all the builders got scared after the last housing boom and bust. And I just get the feeling that the home builders are just not incentivized to build right now. So they they build these. You talked about maybe some higher priced homes, and the people on the lower end are are kind of out of luck. They also pivoted to multifamily homes during the 2010s. There's a huge apartment shortage in in lots of um, lots of cities. So uh, I think you now have more housing starts, and the peak was uh, 1.8 million uh, around spring of last year, which is still way above anywhere um, in in the 2010s. Even now, we're probably running about a million and a half rate, which which. would put us above at at the peak of the last decade. That said, rates matter, but they're not the only factor that matter. Now the U.S. is 330 million people. Go back to the 90s, we were 290 million people. So there are more people looking for houses. And following the financial crisis, track household formation, how often people get married, move in together, that really plummeted. People were living in their basements. They weren't forming uh, families that during the pandemic picked up. And so suddenly we went from too many houses to not enough houses. All that said, uh, everything is always specific. I've looked at some houses online. We all kind of go Zillow surfing and I'm shocked at, you know, you could look at the price history and I'm genuinely shocked that someone buys a house for $800,000 in 2015 and then flips it for nine hundred thousand, and then someone buys it and puts a few hundred thousand dollars and asks three million dollars. The 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 HDTV home flipper stuff. I don't I don't know if that's uh, going to happen anymore. And you know, Ben, you did a great piece on seventy five percent of of mortgage holders have uh, rates at four percent or less. And not right. only is that stimulative to the economy because they're not spending money, they're just not going anywhere. 
Right. So I think your point about it being circumstantial is, is really helpful because the, the, the unless you get a 2008 scenario where most housing prices fall, it's going to be, it's, you're right, it's going to depend on your neighborhood or where you're located or the price point you're at. And so national housing prices for most people are not going to matter. It's going to matter what's going on in your local region. And if you're buying houses or flipping them or just trying to make some money on your own house, it's going to be very specific to where you live. And unfortunately, like the Case-Shiller Index is probably not going to matter to you personally. Yep. And, and you know, when you, when you look around at, at how things are going, we're in the midst of a maybe once in a generation rejiggering of where people are going to work and live. And if you don't have to be in the office, if you don't need to be near a big city center, uh, what does that mean? So, so U.S. I'm sorry, New York saw a population drop um, like a few hundred thousand. California, three or four hundred thousand. Texas increased. Florida increased, and a lot of inland cities are seeing increases. If you're no longer tied to New York, D.C., Boston, uh, San Francisco, L.A., it frees people up, and I think you're going to see prices sort of find a new level. As as the country moves around and finds new place to live, hey, if I could be someplace warmer where the taxes are lower, maybe it's worth selling a house and going elsewhere. And, and I think we're seeing some of that. A lot of people tend want to stay where their family is, and they may not want to pick up and move a thousand miles away. But it's definitely shifting in in a pretty substantial way. I think of it as a giant reset that's taking place. Please do not tell everyone how affordable it still is in the Midwest here because traffic is fine here. I never have to wait in traffic. I never get stuck. It's fine. No one come here. I actually, Please. I saw Grand Rapids on a list of best places to live. So, so here's the funny thing. You look at the big cities in Florida that are attracting all these transplants from, from the Northeast and their infrastructure already is past capacity. Yeah, they they have traffic it, right? issues. They have school issues. Um, even sewage and, and electrical issues, they're just not prepared for the influx. So what looks really desirable, actually, you may be five years behind in your belief system. You have to go kick some tires and, and hang with Disney the locals. You can't even handle the capacity, you know, which yeah. is the main perk of, of being in Florida, right? All right, yeah. got uh, one more question. Okay. Uh, one thing I was going to share real fast on the on the housing thing. I told you about this, Ben, recently, but I just want our audience to hear. I saw when I was looking at places recently, a place for like $600,000 in the Upper West Side somewhere. And I was like, wow, that doesn't sound that bad for the Upper West Side. The HOA fee was 3000 something a month. <laughs> Can Is you imagine? <laughs> what do you get for that? I don't know. They take yeah. the garbage to the curb from, yeah, from, the, right. front, from the front. And yeah, everyone gets for, a Bugatti to drive or something. I don't know. Not for three thousand a month. So sign me <laughs> up for a Bugatti at three thousand a month. I'm in. <laughs> okay. Uh, so last but not least, oh, also I feel like we have to point out the name that Barry has here. That was auto generated by this platform that we're using, and he liked it. So we just I, I may, oh, I I may have to get it. that website. I I, I kind of dig that. <laughs> okay, Bartholomew. Okay. Some say that U.S. equity valuations are generally driven higher over time by the large, relatively constant stream of increasing contributions coming from 401k plans. Based on known U.S. population demographics, when does this macro driver switch from a net positive to a net drag because net contributions turn into net withdrawals? What did uh, Josh this when he wrote about it? The constant bid or something? Or? A relentless yes, bid. Relentless, relentless bid, bid, yeah. 
It was very, yeah, and so I think it it makes sense that fewer barriers to entry would drive up valuation somewhat. Like Barry, I'm not trying to age you here, but your first stock was probably purchased over the phone. No, my first stock was E Trade. Was on on E Trade. Okay, E Trade. So, so but that's what brought me in. But back but, in the day, you had to like go get on the phone or go to an office and fill out some paperwork and maybe write a check. And now you can just you know link your bank to a an app and be investing in five minutes. So if you if you take those barriers down, I think that that should in some ways help you know take away the frictions that should help valuations. But do you put much? We we get questions about this all the time. Do you put much stock in the idea that? Baby boomers will eventually have to sell in mass, and that will make it more difficult for the stock market going forward. Do you think there's anything to this? Uh, very, very little. For, first, 401ks are one factor out of many. I think the U.S. has about $6 trillion in 401ks across six or 700,000 plans, and each plan has multiple employees. So it's a little bit of money every month. It's not an incredible amount of money. Um, that's number one. Number two... You know, we have a very distorted viewpoint of the average investor versus where all the money is. The vast majority of the assets in the stock market, and again, you and I, Ben, have both written about this, the vast majority are in the top 1% and the top 10%. More than- well, I think it's 90% owns is owned by the top 10%, right? They're right. not going to have to sell all at once. Not only are they not going to have to sell all at once, they're going to not want to sell because it's going to generate a giant- tax hit. And what's much better to do is you give the appreciated stock to either your grad or your trust or your kids or whoever it is. And so they get a lower cost basis for ownership. There are all sorts of ways to do this that minimize the tax burden. Selling highly appreciated stock is probably the least efficient way to transfer wealth. And in fact, we've had this conversations with some very wealthy clients about hey, the most efficient way to, to give money to philanthropies is to take some of that appreciated stock, give it to them. It goes into their um, foundation and they tap it as they need. So, uh, you know, okay, so there's 60 million baby boomers who are retiring. A, a quarter of them have a substantial pile of, of assets that are below the top 10%. It's not enough money to really move the needle. Oh, here, John, throw the throw this chart from Goldman Sachs. This is one of my favorite charts. Goldman Sachs has this ownership of U.S. equity markets since 1949 or 1945, and it shows that uh, maybe we don't have the chart, but it shows that back in like the 1940s and 50s, U.S. households owned there you go 95 percent of all stocks individually. They owned them in a brokerage account or something, right? Now you have ETFs and mutual funds and, and index funds and pensions and foreign investors and hedge funds and all this other stuff. And obviously a lot of individuals hold their stock through these things, but it's just so much more diverse now than it used to be. And it's not just mom and pop buying AT&T stock. And what happens if they all go to sell? Oh no, the market's screwed. It doesn't really work like that anymore. The market is so much bigger and more professionalized and institutionalized and uh, you also have, you know, millennials stepping in to buy. Like millennials kind of match the boomers one for one in terms of there's, you know, 70 million of you and 70 million of us. And people are going to be stepping in to sort of buy that, I think. And, and the other part is baby boomers living longer means they're going to have to continue to own some stocks. Right. That's exactly right. I right? would love to see that chart from 1945 to today broken up by, by decile of wealth. And, you know, the bottom, forget even bottom half, the bottom 90% are such a tiny chunk of the assets. Now it's expanded over the past century or so, 
but it's still, you know, eight, 10, 12% of total equity. They're not really moving the needle. The people who are the wealthy people in America, they're not sellers. They're long-term investors. Yeah, Robert Schiller did some great work on this in Irrational Exuberance, where he kind of said, yeah. plus, you think the market doesn't know this demographic stuff is happening? Right, like, right. This, this is the most telegraphed thing that you could possibly think of. And it's not like the market's just going to be surprised by it all of a sudden that, one of these days. That's my answer every time someone says, you know, there's the buying season for gold is coming up in India. <laughs> it's like, yeah, for the past 5,000 years, is it not already? Right. Does the market not understand that? If unless you're teasing out something that's extremely novel, it's probably already in the price. Right. Exactly. Okay, Barry, any good masters of business guests coming up for you? Yeah. So last week um, was uh, Tim Buckley, CEO of Vanguard. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I have coming up Cliff Asness uh, of AQR, who's having a fantastic couple of years. He's been defending value investing. Um, which the past decade has been an uphill battle. And wherever they fell behind in the previous decade, they now just leapfrogged. AQR is putting up crazy numbers. The Cliff past is great. He's days. always good for some quotes. And always, always fun. Uh, this week is David Layton, CEO of uh, the Partners Group, which is the largest publicly listed um, private equity firm in Europe, which coincidentally is headquartered in Colorado. It's kind of uh, interesting. They're a fascinating company and their approach to looking at the difference between public and private equity um, is really intriguing. It's all about valuation. He points out we've switched. Public equities used to be cheap. Private equities used to be expensive. Now they see the world as, hey, public equities are 18, 20 PE. Private, private is still you know 10 to 13. He sees more, obviously sees more upside for his side of the street. Some really interesting people coming up. If, uh, if you could have anyone alive or dead on Masters of Business, who would you have? My experience has been dead people make for terrible guests. <laughs> so I would skip all the people who are dead. Um, but my white whales are essentially Jim Simons, uh, who oh. I met when I was looking at colleges in 1979 or 80. And um, that's a whole nother story. Uh, Drucker Miller and Paul Tudor Jones are, are the other. And, and, I got to interview Steve Cohen at Salt a couple of years ago, but it was a panel interview, and I really want to sit down one-on-one with him, uh, especially since he just bought the Mets, and you know, part of the conversation would absolutely be about baseball. That would Duncan wants you to bring on the CEO of Oatly. Of Oatly? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Oat I'd milk. be up for that. All right, yeah. there you go. All right. uh, that's, thank- that is a booming segment of the market, isn't it? I want to thank Barry for coming on hurting. again. Thanks, Duncan. We want, to, we want to give a big shout out to John, the man behind the scenes who's doing all our charts from live from Belgium today. Actually, he's I told you wrong. He's in Amsterdam now. Amsterdam. So, OK, John yeah. is just a world traveler. Remember, the Netherlands. Email for us and a question. Ask the compound show at gmail.com or leave a question. Thanks to all the people who tuned in live. We always appreciate your comments. Uh, remember, if you want some compound merch, I don't shop dot com. Uh, no other shows this week, but everything will be back to regularly scheduled programs next week. Right, Duncan? Next week. We're back. All right. We'll see you then. See everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. 